0: We're this is FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place the Talk. Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues. A search for truth.
1: Right now that time, eight You're tuned to WGNS on this Tuesday morning, today, November 2nd. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the homeless population in Rutherford County, and also those who may find themselves on hard times here in Rutherford County, and our guest today from H3 Arc. And uh, before we go on, first of all, what is H3 Arc? And Name Jeff Parker, but
2: tell us what H Three Arc is. Sure, it's a mouthful. It's the Housing, Health, and Human Services Alliance of Rutherford County, which is our alliance of seventy agencies and other organizations that are working together to end homelessness.
1: And uh, Jeff, Jeff Parker is the new executive director there. And it it when you say seventy nonprofits that are part of this, or seventy plus nonprofits. Uh, What what do they do? What are some of the backgrounds of some of these nonprofits?
2: Sure, and this is the great part of Rutherford County and our community here because we have nonprofits that are shelter providers, that provide meals, that provide clothing, that provide any kind of social services that you can think of, but also educational organizations and our city governments and individuals and faith-based organizations and churches that are all coming together for us to respond as a community to make sure that folks here have a place to sleep at night
1: so with all of these different organizations coming together they're able to i guess talk and think about new ideas on ways to go out there and tackle some of the issues we have in our community
2: exactly and that's that's why we come together because many of us can you know be parts of different things on our own so you know on my own time with my church i volunteer as well and help with overnight shelters and these kinds of things and and what this organization is all about is both a best best practice but also a requirement for grant dollars and other things that we pull all of that effort together in, in a strategic way to think about, you know, not just how can Jeff go help and stay overnight with the shelter so that folks have a place to sleep when it gets cold, but also how do we as a community Respond to our neighbors who need a little bit of assistance.
1: Is the Housing, Health, and Human Services Alliance is that an organization that is eligible for some of these grants? And if so, what types of grants would you be targeting?
2: Sure, sure. And um, and Hark is a nonprofit, just like any of our other members. So it's designed to be kind of a peer alliance of all of us coming together in Rutherford County, and and we're eligible for grants on our own. But the fun part is Hark is comparatively small. Um, You know, we're a small staff and a small budget that runs a lean operation uh, to make these available to all of our other partner agencies as well. So one we just finished up a process with that comes from uh, U.S. Housing and Urban Development that's called the Continuum of Care Program. And Rutherford County is receiving over $700,000 this year um, coming to multiple different agencies for multiple different projects uh, to assist those who need housing. just because we have this process and we have this collaboration together.
1: Again, Jeff Parker with us, Executive Director of HARC here in Rutherford County. What are some of the problems that you are seeing right now in places like Murfreesboro as far as homeless go and also uh, those who have fallen on hard times? What are you seeing right now?
2: Well, on a cold morning like today, uh, you know, you have to be be constantly mindful that winter is coming for us. And every winter we know that there are folks um, who, who will be in physical harm if we don't find a safe place to shelter for them overnight. And so we have, um, you know, seasonal shelters and the coldest night shelters shelter that opens up in the wintertime to make sure that that we're taking care of those basic needs to say that, you know, here in Rutherford County, people don't need to die just because they were outside on a cold night and didn't have a safe place to go. So we take care of those sorts of things. But one of the big trends that we're seeing right now is all about evictions. And as much as you hear about emergency rental assistance and all of these things, what we know is that even all of those grant dollars are, are potentially just pushing a problem down the road. You know, that there might be a family out there who, you know, maybe lost hours at work or lost a job, you know, potentially because of the pandemic. Um, and these things are continuing and ongoing. Um, and, and we can step in in a lot of different ways and assist those families. Um, but we also need to step in in a longer term way so that if there's, you know, a job training program or new career opportunities that could be popping up, that we're also assisting in those ways. So this is one of those moments where um, certainly there is lots of assistance funds available, and now we're starting to see agencies stepping up and saying, you know, we really want to be in relationship with these neighbors to make sure that this problem doesn't keep popping up again for some of these households.
1: What are some of the funds used for as far as getting somebody into housing of some sort? Because when you look at a, a you know seven hundred thousand dollars, it sounds like a lot of money. Until you start really digging in and and looking around, and properties are not cheap. Rental properties are not cheap. So what what does $700,000 do?
2: Right, and this is one of the areas, and particularly with those continuum of care funds, we have a high emphasis on permanent housing options. You know, what are the things that we can do that put somebody in a household that they can stay in long after our agencies are not having to support them anymore? And, uh, and so we, we laugh a lot. The definition of permanent is when they outgrow us, right? When that household doesn't need one of our agencies to continue supporting them. But that could look like rental assistance or assistance with utilities. Um, also, we know many of these households have, um, you know, kind of co-occurring things, you know, uh, physical health needs, mental health needs, or other social services. And many of these projects can also cover those services for a defined period of time. Um, Depending on the type of program, sometimes that's up to two years. In some of our permanent supportive housing programs, that can run on for for longer time periods. Um, And the case management to go with it so that we're walking alongside that household and so that we know when they've outgrown us and and don't need that assistance anymore.
1: When you look at apartments throughout Rutherford County, I I would venture to say it's hard to find anything under $1,100 a month. And there's not a lot of one bedroom or studio apartments out there anymore. The majority of apartments are either two or three bedrooms. So that said, when somebody does find an apartment, they have to pay the deposit, they have to pay the first month's rent as well, all at the same time so that may be twenty four hundred dollars up front could be three thousand up front that's a lot of money to come up with
2: absolutely absolutely and you look at some of these families some of these households that you know maybe just have one incident their car breaks down and they have an unexpected bill or they have an unexpected medical expense and and that's all it takes to push some households kind of over that tipping point when those are the types of expenses that they're looking at to be able to relocate somewhere. And so broadly speaking, we have, you know, a couple of different ranges of assistance that we can provide, um, and and these are multiple, multiple agencies all across the county. Um, Some are kind of that one time, let's step in to help with this unexpected expense to get you back on your feet, right? Um, But some of them are the more permanent housing that, Yes, it might have been that car bill or that unexpected medical bill that sort of pushed you over the edge, but there's underlying things or there's ongoing concerns that we want to come alongside and and support that household for an ongoing period of time.
1: Something else we have here in our community, and I'm sure most communities have it, weekly rental hotels. And when you say that, weekly rental hotels, you think, "Ah, that's a hotel, couldn't be that expensive. But then you start adding up the price that some of these folks are paying to stay in these weekly rentals, and it's costing them $1,300, $1,400 a month. Uh, more than a house payment on a starter home, if there's such a thing as a starter home anymore. Right. But $1,300 a month or more for a motel room that literally has maybe one to two beds in it, a, a dorm size refrigerator and a bathroom. That's it but $1,300 a month.
2: Right, right. And, and we ha- have been so grateful for the partnership with many of those hotels and motels um, that have been working with us through the pandemic because one of the roles that they have played, uh, that's just not something we had to think about a whole lot before this. Um, if given the option between going to a congregate shelter setting where lots of people might be sleeping closer together or that weekly hotel room, in many cases, over the past couple of years, we've said, okay, that, that hotel room is gonna play a valuable role to help people isolate, to help people quarantine, to help keep everybody you know, safe with physical health. Um, and now we're really tackling sort of the next phase of that. Okay, so uh, in our phrase for it is non-congregate shelter options, particularly for families, particularly for households with multiple persons. Um, uh, now we're really starting to tackle with what's the next step? So, if we needed to put you in a hotel for a couple of weeks and we're so grateful for those businesses that are partnering with our agencies to make that possible um, but what's that next step that case management piece that ongoing relationship by which you know some of the staff from our agencies walk alongside that family to say okay now what happened what was going on that that was in a put that person in a position to need that hotel room in the first place and how can we really work with you on that and give those give those individuals and families a lot of agency a lot of ownership over their own kind of next steps and we can be there to provide assistance and resources to support them in that journey
1: again with us this morning jeff parker and he is the director of hark right here in rutherford county a nonprofit that is, i is—I don't know—kind of an umbrella over different nonprofits or brings together different nonprofits. How, how would you describe Hark again?
2: Um, one of my uh, youth directors, when I was growing up, says my only real power is the power to convene. <laughs> so we bring people together to talk about how we're going to do this as a community.
1: Here in our community, what are we looking at as far as mental illness, addiction, things like that? That. Often go hand in hand.
2: Absolutely, uh, you'll hear us use the phrase a lot. Co-occurring, you know, so that there's multiple things going on at the same time, and we don't always get to know which one came first. You know, was it uh, being put out of my apartment first that then triggered some other things? Did I have a health issue first that then triggered some other things? Um, but what? But a lot of the folks that we encounter, you know, do have multiple things going on in their lives, um, and we generally take an approach that says, let's take care of safe shelter first let's make sure that we've got a safe roof over our heads so that we can start to address many of these other things that are going on and and i'll tell you you know one of the areas that we constantly see wait list for service and you know just kind of a backlog is in the mental health area whether that's substance use or mental health disorders or other things going on. Volunteer Behavioral Health is doing great work in expanding their operations, and, and we are really looking forward to, to some of those new developments. Um, but it's another area that we have seen, especially over the last couple of years, that we have a constant need for.
1: It seems like tackling mental health problems is uh, you know, one of the biggest key pieces of the puzzle in trying to figure out how to get people back on their feet how to get people off the streets and into shelter of some type. Mental illness is one of those things that is really tough to deal with and battle and and face. So how do you face it as an organization? How do you look at it and say, this is what we need to do or figure out how to do?
2: And one of the challenges that we run into a lot is many of our housing type programs have kind of finite time periods. So we can provide assistance for a defined, you know, maybe two years or, or whatever that looks like. Um, but we also know that when you start talking about mental health and even some substance use disorders, two years may not be enough. You know, it, it may take longer to tackle some of these things. And and so we um, you know, part of that is just the what we would refer to as, as wraparound case management or coaching, or you know, just who's walking alongside that individual or family as they're going through all the steps of this process. And, and we think about housing first, so you know, we might have kind of developed a sustainable, stable housing situation, but there may continue to be ongoing services that that individual or family are accessing to help stabilize some of those things that allow them to maintain that housing on their own after they've outgrown us yeah.
1: now your background you came to murfreesboro by way of texas first i guess eventually nashville and then here in murfreesboro so what did you do in texas and kind of give us a rundown on how different services were provided there and, and how they look here in murfreesboro and you know are, are there pros
2: cons Yes, and this is one of those great moments, you know, don't tell my friends back home in Texas. <laughs> but turns out there's other great places to live, you know. Um, so my first experience with homelessness uh, with any scale was was actually down by the, mo- the border. I lived in McAllen, Texas, and it was about 10 miles from my doorstep to Mexico. And through my church, you know, we got involved working with uh, down there, we call them colonias, but they're these giant communities of mostly corrugated aluminum, just shacks that people are living in that families are living in with entire communities and their own churches set up and their own little convenience stores and all these kinds of things that that i was walking through just thinking there's not a place out here that i would consider to be suitable for human habitation there was very little indoor plumbing there was very little electricity you know just in these massive scale
1: yeah i didn't know that there was communities out there like that. But you're saying in Texas, I guess, kind of what, in the desert area, uh, you literally had whole communities built out of corrugated metal, pallets, shipping pallets,
2: absolutely, all, all
1: kinds of wood, but, but you had whole communities. How many people lived in some of these areas?
2: Wow. Um, at least the one that we were working with uh, just through my church had eight, ten thousand folks wow. living out there, mostly families. Um, so so would wild. the
1: average person know that these little communities existed? I mean, were they off the beaten path, or could you see them from the main highways in Texas?
2: So generally, they were pretty good about not being super visible, but of course, in, in South Texas, you don't have very tall trees. So, um, so if you knew where they were, they weren't hard to find. But But these weren't I mean they were they were suburbs of McAllen so you know from my house which was right smack in the middle of town you drove less than a mile to get to them and so everybody knew but it was one of those things that you know everybody saw but we didn't quite know how we could address it on a system-wide level how we could all come together as a community to to really say, hey, that's not the standard of living that we want for our neighbors.
1: So this was what you saw and worked with, I guess, in Texas. And because it was right there on the border of Mexico, did you have a lot of folks in those communities or were they all made up of those who crossed over the border illegally and, and how was that addressed in Texas?
2: So that's a fantastic question. And, and from our role, you know, being a church group that was going there, it just wasn't a question we were asking, you know, we, we partnered with one of the churches in those communities to say, hey, you know, if you're gonna live a mile down the road from Jeff's house, we're gonna make sure you at least have a meal and at least have a safe place to go. Um, and, and so that was kind of the level that we were engaging with it. There were certainly other groups you know, that I wasn't yet involved with at that point who were looking at those broader questions to say, okay, what does it mean to be a member of our community together? What does it mean to have folks who are living that close that are our neighbors um, who send their kids to school and work in our community and, and are contributors in so, so many ways um, and also have all of these other legal questions and these other things going on that that we want to get involved with.
1: You you know, I guess those communities in Texas are similar to some homeless camps here in Tennessee, of course, on a much bigger scale in Texas. Uh, But the similarity would be that you have some folks out there who are homeless who are running from the law. You have some who are homeless who don't have an ID. and, And, you know, as sad as it is, some of them don't even know their own social security number. What I'm saying is a lot of those folks in Texas were not eligible for state-sponsored services, just like the case here in Tennessee, where you have a lot of homeless in the community who are not eligible because of the fact that they may be running from the law. They may be a convicted felon. They may not have proper ID. So when you look at the bigger picture and you say, all right, well, we have X amount of people out there who can't receive any state or federal benefits because of their status what do we do next how can we further help them if we can't get them into certain programs
2: sure and and this is one of those areas that um that we look at and we say, the folks that we're working with here are a lot different than that population that, that I had my first experience with in South Texas. So so one of the nice things that we run into here is we don't have a ton of that population that, that we're looking at saying aren't eligible for services. Um, now we do have a lot of folks who, you know, don't currently have an ID, but it's because they lost it at some point. And when you don't have a safe roof over your heads, turns out it's really hard to keep track of your driver's license, right? Um, and so that's one thing that our agencies work with folks a lot on is making sure we get those ID and how are we going to keep them safe and how are we going to make sure that they're taken care of while we're working through that housing process. But the other thing we run into a lot with many, many of our clients is they're eligible for programs they don't know about them and don't know how to apply for them. And then of course, uh, you know, if you've ever filled out government forms, it takes a little while to make it through that application process. And so we spend a lot of time working with folks on applications for these different programs and making sure that they're able, you know, in many cases that it requires some documentation around it, making sure that they're able to get that documentation, submit it appropriately for those application programs, and then start receiving the assistance that they do qualify for.
1: Again, Jeff Parker with us this morning, director of HARC here in Rutherford County, a nonprofit. That basically brings a lot of other nonprofits together in order to help those who may be struggling, maybe having some real hard times out there. Uh, With Christmas right around the corner, what types of things are you hearing and seeing in the homeless population and also in the population of those who are living just barely from paycheck to paycheck?
2: Well, a couple of things, you know, and number one, particularly for those who don't have shelter over their heads, weather is a lot more important than holidays. <laughs> and, so, and so we think about those basic safety concerns first. But also, you know, you talk to so many agencies who receives so many donations from folks around the community for, you know, angel tree or other kind of Christmas programs, because one of the things that we love that we're able to provide as a community is to say, hey, families, regardless of economic status, you know, we want to make sure that they're having a good experience, that kids are getting to enjoy, you know, the spirit. and and um and really get to participate in part of that and and have some of those things like it wasn't a big deal for me as a kid to get a bicycle you know when i was however old i was when i started learning to ride a bike Um, but that's not true for all of our families and so it takes a lot of folks across the community participating in those types of giving opportunities to make sure that you know we say hey here in rutherford county Kids get bikes, and that's just part of how we live our lives, and that is a good thing that we want to continue.
1: Again, Jeff Parker in studio with us. We're going to take a short break. Time right now, 840. When we come back, we ought to dive more into the uh, mental illness side of things because that, you know, as you were saying, that plays a very significant role in, I guess, leading people to become homeless without even meaning to. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about that when we come back. Time right now, 840. Again, Jeff Parker from Hark with us in studio this morning. We're going to check on the weather forecast and also the traffic, but we will be right back. Partial sunshine
2: develops here this afternoon. We'll see high in the mid-50s. North winds at high to 15 miles per hour. Tonight, mostly cloudy skies alone near 36. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Vujicic on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 45.
1: While we're all hiding indoors from the heat, this is a great time to pick up some new toys to keep your pets entertained.
2: This is Amanda from Animal City. We have a wide variety of products for small pets and their people and the critters themselves to add to your family. Animal City is at 919 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. And don't let your pet go unprotected from fleas and ticks. We have a wide variety of products to suit most needs and budgets. Animal City is at 919 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro.
0: Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas' Restaurant. Demas' Restaurants are now hiring. We are
2: looking for grill cooks and other kitchen employees with competitive pay and flexible hours. If you're looking for full-time work or part-time work, then Demas' is the place to be. We've been voted a top workplace for five years in a row by the Tennessean. Apply within or online at demasrestaurants.com. Demas' Family Restaurants on 1115 Northwest Broad Street. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website and Alexa or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and
1: Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Good morning. Still quite a traffic volume, but it's moving 24 up through the Hickory Hollow area. Continuing towards Nashville, lots uh, of radar down sections of 840 this morning. Mostly uh, over in Williamson County is where we've seen them uh, the most there this morning as you head over towards Franklin. Gatlinburg Wine Cellar, home of the world-famous cotton candy wine. Check them out at gatlinburgwinecellar.com. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic. It's so important that we recognize our veterans Shake their hands and say how proud we are of the service that they have given to our country and that we thank them for that. I
0: am Becky Bookner and we salute our veterans.
1: Save a lot, like a lot, a lot. Join Save a Lot this Friday, November 5th, for our grand reopening. Register to win prizes and come check out our newly remodeled store on Jessica Street off of Middle Tennessee Boulevard. Save a lot. Save on what you crave.
0: Honoring and remembering those who served in our military, here is today's Salute to Veterans. Norm Alzeer, he's a World War II vet. In this salute, we talk to a World War II veteran. When you went into the war, at what stage? Was it the beginning, the middle, close to the end? Well, it was close to the beginning, the beginning. December 7th. How many were on your crew? Six gunners and four officers. Did you ever keep counting how many you shot down? Well, yeah, I shot down three. How old were you when you went in? 19. 19 years old. And what was your parents' opinion of the time? Well, my parents were dead a long time. I was an orphan. Being the young man you were, what kept you going? What was the driving force inside of Norm? I don't know as I could really answer that. You had a job to do, and you had to do it. That's about it, you know. Uh, you just didn't worry about it. You just no, did it. You did it. That's right. And, uh, whenever you got back from a mission, you kissed the ground. I'm glad you're alive. Well, Norm, I look back and think, how would your relatives hear from you? They called it a V-mail. If you wanted to write a letter home, they called it a V-mail. A V-mail instead of an email, huh? Yeah. You write your letter, then an officer would take it, and he'd go over it. If he thought there was stuff in there that shouldn't be said, he would cut it out. And sometimes your letter would get home, and we'd be nothing but holes. This has been A Salute to Veterans on WGNS Radio. Restoration One of
1: Middle Tennessee.
0: A team of experts and immediate responders who help homeowners after disaster strikes.
1: After disaster strikes. Fire, water, or storm damage, we can help you get your life back to normal quickly. RestorationOneMiddleTennessee.com. Locally and better enough. This is Sean Brown at Tire World on Broad Street. Did you know we specialize in commercial and fleet business? We're equipped to handle all of your company's automotive needs. Download our Tire World app today for free oil changes and electronic coupons. Come by today for all of your automotive needs. Online at TireWorld.us.
0: The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSradio.com. We're Rutherford County's Place to Talk.
1: Time right now, 845. Again, Jeff Parker with us, and you are with Hark. You are the Executive Director there, and Hark again, tell us what that stands for.
2: It's the Housing, Health, and Human Services Alliance of Rutherford County.
1: And one of your goals that you were telling me about, I guess last week, you want to someday be able to say, everybody in Rutherford County has the opportunity to have shelter over their head, should they choose that. Um, but is there?
2: Absolutely. Um, I, I'm one of these folks who genuinely believes that one day, if, if you know, we're all pulling together, we're all you know giving from this big giving heart here, and one day we're going to be able to say together that tonight. Nobody has to sleep outside in Rutherford County. Um, and, and we have so many of the resources coming together to move us in that direction.
1: And I was saying before that last break, mental illness is, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. You know, it's very prevalent in Tennessee and throughout the country. But with mental illness and trying to figure out how to work with somebody in order to medicate that mental illness or educate them and then medicate them with the mental illness or whatever needs to be done. How hard is it to do just to get somebody to say, okay, I'm willing to go here to get some help?
2: Right. And this is one of those areas where I, you know, working at Hark and being kind of a couple of steps behind the front lines, if you will, of these questions, I have to give a lot of respect and and have just a huge appreciation for all of our social workers and our case managers and the coaches at our agencies who do this every day, who wake up every morning and say, today, I'm going to be in relationship with these folks who may not even be able to appreciate you know, what it is that I'm here to offer today. But I'm going to continue that relationship until either the client, that individual or family says, no, this isn't for me and makes their own choice to opt out of those programs. Um, Or, you know, we have them permanently housed in in a sustainable and stable way. Um, And those folks, uh, to me, are the heroes of this work, you know, who who uh, engage with those folks every single day to make sure that that all of those individuals and families have access to these resources. And it takes time and it takes a lot of compassion and it takes building a relationship with them over time for that individual who, you know, going into it, we don't exactly know what all is in their background or what might be going on for them. Um, It takes time to build that relationship and earn their trust.
1: And, you know, with mental illness, some folks out there may have been on whatever medication they needed to be on to i guess to align the neurons and chemicals and all that in their brain properly but some of them were on medication and then let's say they get arrested on a public intoxication charge next thing you know they're in jail they can't afford to make a bond they're in there for 15 or so days And then they're off their medication. That means they have to restart this whole process of getting back on the medication, waiting six weeks or longer for it to actually start working. I mean, there's so many revolving doors there. That's just one example of a revolving door for those who are struggling.
2: And you could play out that same story that says, you know, maybe somebody was already living in their car. And then their car broke down couldn't get them to work anymore and they had to leave it one day and their medication was in the car or maybe somebody lost their job and couldn't afford the rent or you know something like that or maybe somebody was sleeping on the couch with their family or friends that were trying to help them out during a tough time but because they were moving around so often, they just lost track of these things, or moved away from the doctor that would, had been working with them and knew what medications were appropriate to prescribe. So there's, there's all these different stories at play, um, and and we never we try not to assume sort of which one came first. You know, did did the car break down first, or was it you know potentially mental health or a physical health issue or something else that came first? Because what we find in working with these clients is any one of those things can bring about multiple others. And and this is true time and time again as you work with clients, you find out, you know, any one of these things could have been sort of the first domino, if you will.
1: A lot of people who live on the streets, they will self-medicate in order I guess to feel like they have some type of quality of life, probably not knowing what they're actually doing. I mean if you have a mental if you let's say Schizophrenia you, you know that's that's one of those that's very prevalent on the streets. If you're schizophrenic and you want to quiet these voices down, you start drinking. and the next thing you know you have an alcohol problem that leads to another addiction after that maybe it's drugs you turn to. But you do have a lot of people self-medicating. How do you go about having a conversation with somebody when not only are they battling this mental illness that is a tough one, they're also battling an addiction?
2: You know, a lot of the times when I think about this, I just start by placing myself in those shoes and say, gosh, you know, if you took away the roof over my head and you took away the fact that I have a good and stable job that provides for our family, if you took away all of these things that I think of as just regular parts of my life that have been a regular part of my life for so long, yeah, yeah, you better believe I might turn to any number of things to to bring some kind of comfort. but." But that's not the only direction that we see these things moving. And one of the things that's very interesting is particularly when you look at numbers of once we provide housing. So for that person who's been experiencing unsheltered homelessness, once they have a safe roof over their heads, a lot of those coping mechanisms can go away. Now, right? Because you're when you're when you're literally unsheltered, when you don't have any of those protections or safeties or comforts that so many of us think about all the time, um, it moves to a different place of your brain, right? You're now functioning on a much more survival mode, and you know a much more. Um, just kind of instinctual uh, mode sometimes. Um, But once we provide for that and once we're able to say, okay, now you've got a safe place to sleep today and tomorrow so that you don't have to worry about that anymore. It's amazing how quickly the human brain can kind of readjust and say, okay, we're in a different circumstance now. What do we want to be working towards today?
1: Again, Jeff Parker with us this morning. He is the executive director of Hark here in our community. When you look at those who are battling addiction, uh, mental illness, and then on top of that, they're homeless, their fight-or-flight mechanisms completely broken. In other words, a lot of them are on guard 24-7 without even meaning to be. So therefore, their bodies are wearing down extremely fast. They're fatigued. I mean, it would be hard just to make it through the day.
2: Absolutely. And and these folks also have have learned skills that, you know, I have never had to learn, right? Of how do you navigate the world, A, when you're in that moment, and B, when when you don't have, you know, as simple as, okay, somebody just gave me this thing that I value. Where am I going to keep it? you know, to show that I value it, to make sure that I protect it. Um, if potentially, you know, the best shelter I've got is the back seat of my car or a tent somewhere or under a park bench somewhere, um, it's tough to have some of those kinds of things. Um, and so this is, this, uh, you know, it's just one of those ways that we see, you know, any one of those types of occurrences can be the first one to happen that then triggers all sorts of different things in the brain. Um, that then can lead to you know co-occurring type things Um, and and that's why we use that phrase that co-occurring because by the time many for the large part by the time we're engaging with folks from a housing system standpoint all of these things are already going on in that individual's life and um and it's a little like a bowl of spaghetti you know you try to untangle a little bit but we know and and um Information across the nation, research across the nation shows when you take care of shelter first, then it helps untangle a lot of those other things much more quickly.
1: And out there on the streets and also throughout the community, you've got on top of the mental illness, you've got other situations that, you know, just make people have extreme social anxiety, which, which may be a problem on top of being bipolar or on top of addiction or schizophrenia so you have folks out there who are needing help but they are literally afraid to go into areas where there's large groups of people which may be other homeless persons receiving services so that's got to be another battle is trying to work with those who are afraid
2: to be in big groups and, and, and I love that description of it because it says something about the heart of that social worker, the heart of that church volunteer, the heart of that uh, case manager or coach who intentionally walks into those relationships and says, even if you may not be able to respond to me right now, I'm going to engage with you. And, and I think that also says something more broadly about the number of groups that we have offering meals. folks who are experiencing literal unsheltered homelessness right now or who are staying in hotels or motels temporarily right now is incredible Um, and it says something about the character of those folks that they're willing to engage in those circumstances and say even if that person isn't able to express you know um, gratitude for the meal or anything else we choose to be in relationship with our neighbors because we know that we, that we can walk alongside them in that journey. Um, and the more we do that, the more we engage in that relationship, the more it invites people back to uh, sort of the structural word for it is mainstream services, right? Um, but the simple act of talking to that person, of potentially offering that meal, of just being a kind and, and friendly face the way we would do with anybody else, makes a big difference in that in that co-occurring situation.
1: And I'm guessing that volunteers out there who notice a lack of gratitude, at least that's what they're picking up. They think it's a lack of gratitude, but they're not understanding, I guess, the deeper problems that are going on there because this is, you know, their third time to volunteer serving meals or, or helping in any way. But it goes right back to that fight or flight mode that a lot of folks are in and they're, adrenaline is up and down it's all over the map i mean we've all been in that situation where our our adrenaline has gone up you don't think straight when your adrenaline is sky high you don't think straight when you're in that fight or flight mode and if these persons out there their body is in that mode 24 7 they're not thinking to just say hey thanks You, you know that that it sounds easy but it's something they're not thinking about saying.
2: Right. And the fascinating thing, and and this is, you know, from my own experience, but I hear this from stories from folks that are serving right here also. You know, the first time you go meet somebody and maybe deliver that meal, or the first time I'm an overnight host at a shelter, or, you know, all these different ways to get engaged, it is a little awkward conversation, you know. Um, But by the 10th time, the 20th time, when I get to know this person and they get to know me and they start to understand, Hey, Jeff is coming back. You know, this is a relationship. This isn't just a transactional meal or something like that. It's amazing how quickly that opens up. And so that would be one thing that I would encourage for, for that person who's, who's thinking, you know, gosh, what could I do? Yes. I could go with my church group and offer something. Um, Think about doing that multiple times. Think about being in real relationship, maybe with just a very small number of folks to start engaging. Um, Number one, it's amazing the things you learn. I learn more about the history of the community from talking to folks who have been here and seen it from a different angle um, than, than I might ever learn on my own walking around. But also, you know, you're tapping into something really positive in that person's brain chemistry, right? And this is where I get out of my field of study here. But um, but good things happen when we have, you know, very normal, fruitful human relationships.
1: You know, and for folks listening this morning, there are things you can do to get involved, even if you don't feel comfortable with going to Greenhouse Ministries or going to Barnabas Vision and, and actually being there surrounded by others and helping there's other things you can do to get involved on your own such as preparing i know david cogan at barnabas he calls them blessing bags but you know preparing little bags with snacks in them shampoo even and then just randomly handing them out your door window while you're pulling up to a stop sign if you see somebody who appears to be homeless i mean there's little things you can do daily that aren't gonna cost you a lot and they're not gonna take a lot of time away from you, but there's little things you can do.
2: Absolutely, and and the thing that I like about that, and I travel around with a little Ziploc bag in my car for exactly that circumstance too, um, Um, But those are things that anybody can do, you know, just have that little Ziploc bag in your car, prepare a few, you know, get together with your Sunday school class or your other group that you're meeting with um, and prepare a bulk of those bags and keep a few in your cars and give a few to Barnabas Vision or Murfreesboro Cold Patrol or others that are looking for those supplies. Um and in the realm of things we can do here uh, very soon, uh, you know it's also a good moment to be thinking about a warm bowl of soup at Habitat for Humanity's cooking to build this weekend.
1: Definitely so. Again with us this morning, Jeff Parker from Hark. You can find out more online at h3arc.org. Thanks for joining us.
2: My pleasure, thank you. Old friends, new name, Better Together, as
0: First National Bank of Murfreesboro transforms into Capstar Bank.